Welcome to Living Faith, the podcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. Living Faith features the preaching and teaching ministry of First Baptist Church from our Sunday morning and evening services, as well as our Wednesday night Bible studies for students. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ so that the lost might be saved and the Christian might be equipped. God's primary tool for this kind of growth is the regular preaching and teaching of His Word. That's why here at First Baptist, our prayer echoes that of the psalm. Above all else, God's Word and God's name should be exalted. This is our new Sunday evening series entitled, What is the Church? Our Father, we thank you for every good and perfect gift which comes from you. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you offer us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we humbly ask tonight that you wash us and cleanse us. And like you said to the apostles that night in the upper room, you were already clean. You just need this washing. Lord, we've already been cleaned by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith in the gospel. We've already been forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future, and justified in your sight as if we had never sinned. But every day we do fall short still. We still sin. We still fail you. We still break your law. We ask that you, by the blood of your Son, would forgive us of those trespasses. And although our salvation is secure in you, Lord, restore our fellowship with you and restore the joy of our salvation and the presence of the Holy Spirit that we can enjoy when there is nothing between us. So forgive us of our sins. Forgive us where we fail you. Open our eyes to see marvelous things in your word tonight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, if you would. Tonight is... um, we, part five of our series, What is the Church? So if you remember way back at the beginning of this series, we asked the initial question, what is the church? Uh, that's the title of this series, but it was the title of that particular lesson. We talked all the way back in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that when 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost, they quickly devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. Four things that identified the local church. Fellowship with one another, listening to the teaching of the apostles, celebrating the Lord's Supper or communion together, and praying together. We also have been talking about in Sunday school, at least over the past couple weeks, and something I'm going to bring in here tonight through our study in Acts in Sunday school, we've been talking about the importance of the word together there in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 3. The word that we see there is a stronger word than just meaning that we're in the same place at the same time. We here tonight could call ourselves together. Anybody gathering in any particular place could call themselves being together, but in the Bible... That one word we have in English is several different words. That means of the same goal, of the same purpose, of the same mind, and we're going to see that tonight. So that was the early church, and they moved forward. There were their four marks of the early church. Remember, there's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We talked about what each of those means. Then we started going through the emblem of our church, this logo that you see here. Uh, We talked about the importance and the centrality of the word in our church, whether it's through the preaching ministry here or the teaching in your Sunday school class. We talked about what we believe about preaching, what we believe about preaching, our teaching, 
and the scriptures. Then we talked about the Lord's Supper the night we actually celebrated the Lord's Supper a few weeks ago. And last week we skipped all the way to the globe and talked about our mission as the church. And we talked, of course, about how that is simply the Great Commission to go into all the nations and preach the gospel, make disciples, baptizing them, and then teaching them. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the follow-up to that, I guess, if you could call it that. I didn't really anticipate switching them like that. It just kind of happened in my my spirit, but um, I'm glad that it happened that way because now we get to go into that second phase of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, comma, baptizing them baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the way that little sentence is set up there in Greek tells us that this stuff coming after is how we actually do the first thing. Make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them. Anytime you see a comma followed by verbs in the present tense, as in baptizing, teaching, that's telling you how to do the first thing. So make disciples by baptizing and by teaching them to observe all I commanded you. So let's ask this question tonight. What is the importance of baptism in the local church? Number one, we are a Baptist church. If you couldn't tell by our name, we are First Baptist Church. Uh, who was talking to me recently about why we are Baptist? I can't remember. Someone asked me recently, as like the other day, why we're called First Baptist, and if that's something different than Southern Baptist. And my answer was no. When I was at home in North Carolina in Gastonia, we attended a free will Baptist church. If you could believe I ever attended a free will Baptist church, we did. And uh, my parents still do. And people would all the time stop at First Free Will Baptist asking if that was First Baptist. And they just thought that the free will was part of the name, not a designation of the denomination. Well, here at First Baptist Church, that just says that we were the first Baptist church established in Avon Park. Just like the first Baptist church in Sebring was the first Baptist church constituted and established in Sebring. That's the way that works. We are Southern Baptist by our affiliation, by our denomination. You can check that out online. But we're just the first Baptist church. Well, what does it mean to be Baptist? I was talking to a Mormon missionary one time who said, well, at least our church is named after Jesus and not John the Baptist. And he was dead serious. He thought we had named our church after after John the Baptist. Well, you know, and they named their church the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And to him, that was a, a good argument. And I quickly explained to him that has nothing to do with John the Baptist. John the Baptist just happened to baptize people. That's why we're called Baptist. Number two there is that we immerse believers in water on a credible profession of their faith. We immerse believers in water upon a credible profession of their faith. Now you might not understand why that is a, a, a demarcation of the word Baptist, what, what that means for us. Uh, maybe most of you were raised in a Baptist church, and I'll talk to you later about why I don't call it the Baptist church. Maybe you weren't raised in a Baptist church and you don't understand why that's so significant, why that makes us so distinctive. Um, Maybe some of you were raised in a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church or some other church that does baptism in a different mode, whether it's through pouring on the baby's head or an adult's head or sprinkling or simply doing the sign of the cross on their forehead. Maybe that's what you knew and that doesn't, you know, this whole baptism thing is neither here nor there for you. But tonight we're going to talk about why it is a distinctive at our church and why that's an important distinctive. Um, That's because, number three here, uh, this is a visible sign of regeneration 
and washing in the blood of Jesus. So we talked about tonight, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And when we submit to believer's baptism, we're signifying outwardly that we are uh, removing our sins through faith in Christ, not through baptism. We'll talk about that tonight. But it's the sign that our sins have been washed away by his blood. It's a sign that we have received a new birth through faith in Christ. It's a sign of those things. And then number four, most importantly, probably for us to understand in the context of the local church, is that baptism is the front door of the church. Baptism is the front door of the church. If anybody's familiar with the, uh, the movie Spartacus, starring Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas? Was that him? Yeah. Um, this, this general, Spartacus, leads a, a kind of a rebellion of prisoners against the Roman Empire. Leads an army of prisoners against the Roman Empire. And in the climactic scene, when they're confronted with the Roman army, and here's this band of prisoners that are rebelling against the army, one of the generals from the Roman army steps up and says, Who's Spartacus? Where is Spartacus? And they're going to, of course, take him and execute him by crucifixion for rebellion against the Roman Empire. So where is he? And we know that the character that actually is Spartacus stands up first and says what? I am Spartacus. And then what happens? One by one, every single prisoner behind Spartacus stands up and says, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus. And there's this overwhelming echo of the cry, I am Spartacus. And you would think that the Romans say, oh my goodness, they're all together and they're all one, let's leave them alone. But no, they crucified them all. And down this long stretch of street there outside the city is this long line of crucified prisoners. Well, if we can't identify who the one Spartacus is, we're just going to crucify them all. And it seems like a loss, doesn't it? It seems like a waste to do that. But what was being shown there was a a solidity and a unity that went above and beyond the fear of death, the fear of torture, at that time crucifixion, which our Lord died by, a very serious and violent death that took long time. But they were unified behind a common ideal and a common purpose and a common passion. And because of that, they willingly identified with one another. I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. In the church, we have a similar cry, and that's that we're unified with Jesus. I am with Jesus. I am with Jesus. I am in him. And we say that about one another as well. Just as Christ loved us, we love one another. So our baptism signifies and portrays our union with Christ through his death and resurrection, and it signifies our entrance into the family of God, but it also goes a big step further in signifying our unity with each other. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, and let's start in verse 1. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one spirit and or one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave, gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Who, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be called children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So in our baptism, we signify something that is not only onefold. It's not just have. It doesn't have just one signification to it. It has multiple. And we're going to talk about that tonight. So, in the local church, baptism serves as the front door to the fellowship of God's people. In this way, baptism is central to the local church because it is the one profession. It is a public profession of faith. Number two, it is a pledge. It is a pledge or vow to the church. And three, it is a promise. A promise to work together for the gospel. So let's start with number one. It is a profession. It is a public profession of our faith. I'm not going to ask you to turn here. Just in your minds, go here in, in your minds. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. We read it last week. Go into all the nations. And this initial command of Jesus when he's telling them to go and make disciples of all nations. is immediately followed by that follow-up command. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we see that the apostles follow this. On the day of Pentecost, after they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they've spoken in tongues, and then Peter has preached the gospel to them. There are few that are cut to the heart by what they hear, and they ask Peter, what shall we do? We receive your message, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later, just one verse or two verses later, it says that those who received his word were baptized. Those who accepted his message were then baptized. Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7, Paul talks about our unity in baptism. That it signifies that we have died with Christ. We have been crucified with him. We're put under the water as a sign of death. And we're raised up from the water as a sign of our resurrection with him. And he's saying that to tell the Romans to put away sin. Don't you know that you have already died to sin? Your baptism was a signal, a sign that you have already died to sin and you are now new creations in Jesus Christ through the resurrection that is symbolized by you coming up out of the water. So Paul says this is a sign of our union with Christ and our death to sin. And then maybe lastly, Colossians chapter 2, after Paul has got done talking about Jesus being the creator of all things, he's preeminent in all things, he's the fullness of the Godhead in a bodily visible form, he quickly launches into a discussion about baptism, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you were raised by the power of God through a circumcision that is made without hands. The Old Testament uh, men, the Old Testament Hebrew men received the physical sign of circumcision, a cutting off of the old man and revelation of the new. In the New Testament, there's a spiritual circumcision that happens when we receive the new birth or we're born again. This is signified by baptism. That's what Paul is arguing for there. When you receive a physical birth, the Hebrew men received a physical sign. Now we no longer do that. 
when you receive the new spiritual birth, you receive the spiritual sign of the covenant, that being baptism. So I hope that kind of brought us up to date at where we are in our discussion about baptism, all the multiple angles we can look at it through. But in this first point, that baptism is our profession of faith, we have to ask whose profession is it? This is almost the same as last week's discussion about the mission. Number one, baptism is God's profession to us. In fact, I would say first and foremost, baptism is God's profession of faith or profession to us. So when we're saved, when we're justified, as Protestants, we believe that that justification, our conversion, when God declares us not guilty, he declares us free from our sin and he saves us, we call that the instantaneous act of justification. We stand before God as being not guilty, not because of works that we do, or becoming good enough and reaching a certain point that God declares us not guilty. But when we repent of our sins and we turn to Christ in faith, simply receiving the promises that he's poured out in the gospel. When he says, here's my son, believe on him and cling to him. We say yes and we respond and we grab a hold of that by faith. We're justified instantaneously and we stand before God as if we have never sinned. We are declared not guilty in that moment. Now in the Roman Catholic system, this is a progression that begins when you're baptized and continues through the rest of your life. And you reach a certain level of justification before you die. And then you go to purgatory, uh, a true Catholic would tell you, go to purgatory to kind of work the rest off. uh, And then you initially or eventually get to paradise or heaven. In the Protestant system, however, we see the finality of it in the book of Romans, that by faith in Christ and what he did, not what you do, you are justified in that moment and declared not guilty. So, no matter what I say tonight, I'm building that foundation that we're justified by grace through faith alone. We're not saved through baptism. We're not saved at baptism. We're not saved by baptism. So uh, the language might get a little confusing because we're going to talk about it seriously, but hear that as a foundational point tonight. We're not saved by being baptized or even through baptism. It is the sign of that inward change that happens only by faith. So Jesus came to fulfill the law. We can't fulfill the law. We're unrighteous. We're sinners. Jesus comes. He fulfills the law. He works the works that we can't do. And by faith in him, we're declared righteous before God only by faith. Whose work? Christ's work. Whose life? Christ's life. Whose death? Christ's death. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. And the reason I work those four out is because that's what baptism is going to signify us being unified to. When Jesus came onto the scene at the Jordan River with John the Baptist, he was baptized in water. Not because he needed it. He didn't need this baptism for repentance, but he was identifying with us and showing us that by his work and his life and his death and his resurrection, we can be saved. Likewise, when we're baptized in water, we are identifying with him and what he has already done for us. So baptism, first and foremost, is God's profession to us. Because what happens as soon as Jesus comes out of the water there in uh, the Jordan River? The glory shines from heaven. There's a cloud that appears. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And we hear this profession from God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When you are baptized, it is a sign that by faith you have been grafted into the family of God. And God is, it's as if God is declaring that same thing over you. When you're baptized and you show that publicly, I'm professing my faith in Christ publicly, 
God declares that same thing over you. You are my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. Romans chapter 10 verse 8 says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Acts chapter 2 verses 37 through 38 though, the people say, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. So we're saved through faith alone, that's true. We're saved by God's grace through faith alone. But we have to understand that true saving faith is never a faith that stands by itself. It's been said that we're saved by faith alone, but we're not saved by a faith that is alone. James makes that perfectly clear when he says that we are not justified simply by faith. We're justified by faith that is accompanied by works. There is a natural outworking of our faith that proves that our faith is real. It shouldn't bother us when James says we're justified by faith and works. He's not contradicting Paul. He's simply building on what Paul has said. Abraham was justified by faith before he even took Isaac up on the mountain. But his taking of Isaac up on the mountain, his leaving his country and following God, that was the sign of his obedience. That was the sign of his faith. It was the natural outworking of his faith. So it's as if to say that faith that is alone is not real faith. Faith that is alone cannot save you. Jesus says, you know that you're my disciples if you obey my commandments. We know. That's the evidence. So we should see baptism in that same way. That's the evidence that we are belonging to God. It's the evidence that we have been saved. It's the sign that we have been saved. It's just the natural overflow of the disciple. It's been called the first step of obedience because it's just how we simply show that we're professing our faith in Christ. Romans chapter 6 again, Paul says that this signifies our union with Christ. You've been buried with him in a death like his and you have been raised in the likeness of his resurrection. That's what baptism shows. That's why we're Baptist and we put you all the way into the water. You cannot show death, burial, and resurrection by pouring water on someone's head. You cannot show death, burial, and resurrection by receiving the sign of the cross on your head. You cannot show death, burial, and resurrection by being sprinkled or any other form. There's one simple picture that's being portrayed in baptism, and that is dying to your old self and being raised to the newness of life. That's the only thing that can put that picture before us is seeing a person go in the water and come out of the water. It's been said by those who disagree with this point that all you need is water and the triune name. But I would challenge that and say Romans chapter 6 says if that picture is not present, then the whole sign is missed. It's not simply a washing away of sins. It's not simply the sign of regeneration. It's not simply the sign of receiving the water of life and the Holy Spirit, although it is all those things. It has to be at its core a sign that we are identifying with Christ and being raised to newness of life. And we hear that profession that comes from God's mouth the same way it came from Jesus' mouth. Through that sign, God is professing to you, you are my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. We as humans like things to feel and to touch and to smell. We like physical confirmation of things that we're, we're told that. We like to sign things, and legally that's kind of uh, binding. We have to sign things. And there's a, there's, a, there's a sense of reality that comes with my wedding ring and your wedding ring or whatever, your engagement ring. Those signs don't mean that the thing is necessarily true. But for those that it is true, it's a confirmation and a physical sign that I'm married, not only to me, but to you. 
And the same with my wife and everyone else that has that kind of... And we live in that kind of world with physical confirmation of things that are true. And God knows that we need those things. We're human beings. We need confirmation. We need visible stuff. We need physical, tangible things to confirm these spiritual promises. And that's why he gave us the ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. To physically confirm the promises that have been made in the gospel. And so when we step into the pool or the water of baptism... And we feel the water. When we go under the water, when we come out of the water, when we hear the water. When is the last time you sat in a baptism here and you thought about your baptism? When you hear the water turning, when the pastor steps in or the person steps in, did that confirm something to you? Or did you just think, well, that's the water for baptism? Next time, next time, think about that. When you hear the water, when you see the water, when you smell the water. <laughs> there was one church in Nashville I played it for a recital in. It was a Christian church, and um, they liked their spontaneous baptisms. And they had a, uh, a baptism pool set up in the sanctuary that was always filled. And it was like a, like a hot tub. It had, you smell the chlorine when you stepped into the, uh, the sanctuary. So there you go. That was confirmation. Every time you see and hear and feel baptism and however that happens to you it should be a confirmation to you and a memorial to you that my faith is in Christ and he has declared over me I am his son I am his daughter by faith in the gospel number two baptism is our profession to God baptism is our profession to God so not only is it as if God is saying this is my beloved son it is our profession to to him as well. Ancient baptismal practices part, uh, practice something uh, called the creed, which, which we don't do a lot of in Baptist circles, unfortunately, um, but that can be rectified real quick, um, in which a creed is recited to the person and they're asked if they agree. So in the ancient church, if someone was coming to be baptized, very simply, they would ask them, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things that are seen and unseen? And they'd say, I do. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, born of the Virgin Mary and crucified and buried and risen again? You'd say, I do. And the Holy Spirit and the Catholic Church and all those things, one by one by one, they would make sure that they're in line with the statement of belief that characterized someone as Christian before they would baptize him. So there was a profession that was going to God. Do you believe in this? Yes, I do. Do you believe in God the Father? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes. And it's that verbal outpouring. Paul says the confession of your mouth and the believing in your heart that saves someone, not being dunked in water, but they go together. They're like opposite sides of the same coin. They don't make sense without one another. True saving faith is marked by baptism, not only because it's God's profession to us that we're saved, but it's our profession to God that we believe in him and in the Christian faith that has been handed down for us century after century after century and through his word. Number three, baptism is our profession to the world. Baptism is our profession to the world. So God says says to us, you're my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. We say to God, I believe in you and I'm renouncing the devil and all his works, as some of those creeds say. I'm pledging myself to God. I'm professing to him my faith and my desire to follow him. But it's also a public profession to those who are watching and to the whole world. When John the Baptist was baptizing in the... uh, 
Jordan River in the Gospels, there wasn't much controversy to that. I mean, he was kind of a wild-looking man coming out of the wilderness, but he wasn't preaching anything necessarily contradictory to the law. In fact, the Pharisees were quite all right with him preaching a message of repentance. He did step on their toes a few times, calling them a brood of vipers and hypocrites and all that good stuff. But there was nothing necessarily blasphemous about his message. He was just simply saying, Messiah is coming. Wash yourselves and repent and prepare yourself for what God is about to do. The Pharisees believed that. They knew that God was sending Messiah at some time to set them free from the Roman Empire and to set up the throne of David in a literal, physical way. And everybody should repent and sure go through the ceremonial washing process. That's fine. There was nothing necessarily dramatic about John's baptism. Nothing controversial about John's baptism. But think about Acts chapter 2. When Peter says to a group of people, many of whom might have been baptized by John's baptism, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And that was pivotal. That was radical. This is a man who people knew has just been killed for supposed insurrection against the Roman Empire, for blasphemy against the temple and the law and the Pharisees and Judaism as they knew it. And Peter was saying, if you want to be saved, you're convicted by the message, you must repent of your sins and not simply be dipped in water in some unknown name or for baptism for the remission of sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And he wasn't prescribing a formula. There's a whole group of of, of Pentecostals that think it must be baptism and you must say in Jesus' name for it to be valid. But that's not what the, the scriptures are teaching us here. This is a turning point for the church. Jesus said baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These apostles were just making sure that these Jewish believers knew what they were getting into. You're not just receiving a baptism in anybody's name. This is more than baptism in John the Baptist's name. And really when you see in the name of, it means by the authority of, or into the authority, into the account of. They were receiving a baptism that most certainly put a mark of persecution on their heads, if not death. What they were doing by being baptized and identifying publicly to everyone watching what they were doing by identifying with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one whom they crucified, whom they believed was an insurrectionist, a rebel, and a blasphemer, a false teacher, they were saying, I own him as mine, and I give myself to him. Later, this would mean severe persecution by Jewish leaders, such as Saul, before he was converted. This would mean their death for following Christ. For the Romans, it would mean death because they're supporting someone who they were trying to silence and to keep quiet. We don't think about that often in America, do we? Especially in the South. We almost get baptized in the South as a form like a rite of passage. It's just kind of what we do when we're six or seven. We say the prayer, we check the card, and the next thing we do, we go get baptized. And we don't have any idea what we're doing. I didn't. Don't have any idea what it really means. We just know this is what you do. This is how it works. Step one, step two, and now you're good to go. That's how we treat it in America. We, we don't approach baptism with that seriousness of a decision to follow Christ, even if it means persecution, torture, and maybe even death, because we don't live in that world. 
But that world certainly exists today in a very real way. This comes from the Baptist Press that you can find on bpnews.net. So if you go to bpnews.net or just search sbc.net and search exchange student accepts Christ and is disowned by his family. Um, a Ukrainian or Uzbekistanian student named Sherzad Adilov was in America as an exchange student. So he was living with a family in Arkansas. Okay? He's from Uzbekistan, 98% Muslim. And he's here in America living with this Christian family in Arkansas and goes to church with them and is exposed to the gospel. And through the miracle of regeneration, God touches his heart, convicts him, opens his eyes to the beauty of the gospel, and brings him to himself in faith. And this man confesses faith in Christ and wants to be baptized. So he calls his dad overseas and says, Dad... I don't think that I want to follow Islam anymore. I find this Jesus to be a far more better offer. With Islam, you have the five pillars and the five things you do, and, and you kind of hope that in the end, your, your good deeds and your good stuff outweighs your bad stuff, and maybe Allah, who is not merciful by nature, maybe he will have mercy on you when you die, and you won't go to hell. But there's not a good chance because we're too sinful. And so a lot of Muslims live with that kind of hopelessness and that kind of drive to please Allah, even though it seems impossible. Christianity does not offer us a softer God. It offers us a God who says, you must fulfill my law. But it's also a religion and a faith that says we can't follow that law completely. But there is one who did. And by faith in him, we can know that our sins are forgiven and that we have eternal life. That's a much better offer than crossing your fingers and trying to follow the five pillars and trying to do everything you can to please your God. And this student was captured by the beauty of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ and puts his faith in him. And he's telling his dad, I think that this is going to be great. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a Christian. And something that we probably have never, ever experienced or known anybody who's experienced this. The dad on the other phone, on the other line says, if you do that, you're no longer a part of this family. You cannot return to Uzbekistan. You can never see your mother or your siblings or your family again. In fact, if you come over here, you will not be welcomed in our home. And I will make sure that you are hunted down and killed for apostasy, which is a serious capital offense in Muslim countries. This is between his profession of faith and his baptism. And he's facing this crucial moment of publicly professing his faith in Christ. And he follows through with baptism, knowing that that meant being disowned by his family being cast out from his society, being estranged from his culture, being a blasphemer and apostate to Islam. We cannot relate to that kind of thing, can we? When we're baptized, that's probably the furthest thing on our mind. Even our unbelieving family and friends in the South will come watch us get baptized and celebrate with us, even if they have no clue what it means. How many of us, though, know what it means to step into the waters of baptism knowing that we're basically estranging ourselves from everything we know, possibly putting a bounty on our own heads and saying, I'm willing to suffer with Christ 
even if it means physical torture and death, to have what is mine in his and in his gospel. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13, if the world hated me, it will hate you also. Are you willing then to take up your cross, follow Jesus, die to yourself daily? Is that what you're willing to do to follow Jesus? Are you willing to suffer rejection of family and friends from culture and society? Uh, I read today that I think it was Russell Moore who said that you know that you have the Holy Spirit if you feel that you are increasingly alien in whatever culture you live in. That means around the world, you know that you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you if you find yourself increasingly and increasingly a stranger in whatever society or culture you're in. So much of Christianity nowadays is trying so hard, trying so hard to fit in with society and to fit in with culture that we have forgotten that one of the primary marks of being a Christian is being cast out by culture. That it means being hated by society. Jesus said, you're not better than me. I am your Lord and your master. And if they hated me, they will hate you too. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. That's a foreign concept to us in America and specifically in the South. And when we were all baptized, myself included, that was probably not a factor in our thinking. But it certainly was to this first century church. And it should be to ours. And who knows, in a generation or two separated from now, that might return real and a viable threat. That baptism literally marks you out for persecution, arrest, trial, and perhaps even death. This idea of a crucified Messiah, the idea of Christianity based on foundational truths, based on absolute truth, based on a Bible that we believe is inerrant and infallible and inspired, that it is the word of God, based on a gospel that says there is no other way of salvation except through Jesus Christ, based on a Savior who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and apart from me there is no other way to the Father. Society society and culture has not a lot to do with that. It might not fit neatly within the cultural demands of our day. It might offend the current ebb and flow of our social and our political opinions. In fact, it does. It might fly in the face of the politics of today. It might cost you your friends. It might cost you your job. It might cost you your material goods. It might cost you your comfort. It might cost you your life. But think about Jesus. Jesus lived me he died for me he bought me I'm his we can say like Polycarp one of the first ancient Christian martyrs that we have recorded when the fire was brought to him and he and they said deny Jesus Christ or suffer this fire as Dr. Jones reminded us at D now weekend this past year Polycarp in the same words said bring on the fire I will never, never deny my Lord. We must say to the world, we must say to Satan, bring whatever you want. Bring whatever you want. Bring the fire, bring the persecution, bring the jail, bring the estrangement, bring the exclusion, bring the persecution, bring the torture, bring the death, bring whatever you want at us. 
No weapon formed against me shall prosper. Not because I'm so great and not because I'm so righteous, but because there, one who, there is one who was great. There is one who was righteous. There is one who fulfilled the law to the T for me, who died for me, who was buried for me, who rose again for me. And by faith in him, I'm covered by his blood. I am filled with the Holy Ghost. There is nothing that the world can do to me. Like Martin Luther said in the song, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Do not fear those who can just destroy your body, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The adverse of that is that although they kill our body, fear God who can give your soul eternal life and even raise your body back from the dead. That is what we profess in baptism. I belong to him. I own him and he owns me. I am his and he is mine. I identify with Jesus, whatever that means in the culture. Who cares what the culture says? I belong to Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I confess and I profess his gospel and his gospel alone. Baptism is our profession to the world. Number two, baptism is our pledge. It is our pledge or our vow to the church. Another portion of those ancient baptismal creeds asks this question. The pastor says, Will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and the prayers? Those four things from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. To which the person responds, I will with God's help. In Acts chapter 2, we see that. The 3,000 are baptized and they quickly devote themselves. We've been talking about this word in Sunday school too. It means with persevering strength, they continued in. In fact, you can see that there in your notes. The word used for devoted themselves. Uh, I think I skipped the slide, but I'll tell you this. I love the word used for devoted themselves because it literally means to continue in or to remain in. Actually, I skipped it in your notes. It's on the slides. Just write it on the back of your notes. That word that says they devoted themselves meant they continued in. They persevered in. That means it's an ongoing present experience of the apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayers together. You might also write this on that blank portion because it's on the slides, not in your notes. Acts 2.44, that word together, again, it means they had one mind, they had one goal, and they had one purpose. What happened that brought this unity upon them? Acts 2.41, those who accepted his word were baptized. Then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, fellowship, and the prayers to each other. They pledged themselves to each other. Baptism not only signifies our union with Christ, it signifies our union with his body, the church. Baptism signifies our union with his body, the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that by the Spirit, we are baptized into the body of Christ. We have one Spirit who baptizes us into the body of Christ. This might be a reference to water baptism. It might just be a a thing that Paul is saying when you believe in Jesus, you're immersed into the body of Christ. Either way, the picture is clear. You're not saved by yourself. You're not saved to be by yourself. You're saved to be with other saved people. You're saved in a body. You're saved in a group. 
We have to make a personal decision to follow Christ. Very true. And we can't be saved because of someone else's profession of faith. But when we come to Christ in faith, the Spirit baptizes us. He immerses us into a body that we become a member of. It's not just me. It's us. Through baptism, we pledge, listen, we pledge our love and devotion to our church family. Through baptism, we pledge our love and devotion to our church family. Number one, this means faithful love. Faithful love for one another. This is what baptism is saying. Number two, we pledge faithful fellowship with one another. We're pledging ourselves to each other. And then number three, all of this kind of concludes in faithful attendance. Faithful attendance. Hebrews 10.25 is very clear. Do not neglect to meet together. Pastor John always liked to use the illustration of a coal and a fire. You know, when the embers at the bottom are burning. The red hot coals. And if you were to take one of those coals or one of those embers and separate it from the group that is hot and burning and glowing red. If you were to separate one and leave it by itself for long enough, it would burn for a little while and stay the same color and be hot. But after time, while those coals that are together are still hot, that coal will remain cold. When we're feeding Anna at a restaurant or at home and we have like rice or some kind of vegetable that's in a, you know, it's in a blob together, we cool it off first, and one of the ways I do it, because I, I don't know, I just think weird this way. I think about that illustration. I take a few pieces of rice, I put them on a different, piece of, uh, a different plate, and I kind of spread them out so they're not on each other, staying hot, but they're cooling off, and they cool off much faster. The same is true of you. If you separate yourself from this body of believers, if you neglect the meeting of yourselves, if you neglect that pledge you made to each other to love each other, to fellowship with one another, to meet together... If you separate yourself from that, you will grow cold. And Hebrews says, when your heart is hardened by sin, there's the danger of apostasy. The danger of falling away from the faith. And that whole book is written to tell you, stay together. Stay persevering in your faith. Stay together. The great theologian, Justin Bieber was recently quoted in an interview with People magazine in which he says that um, he's a Christian and avows some kind of faith in Christ, but he says going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to Taco Bell makes you a taco. Now this is true. Going to church does not make you a Christian. But he goes on to say that that's why he doesn't go to church often. In his opinion, he doesn't need to go to church to be a Christian. And that's true. Just being in church does not make you a Christian. A fly, a regular house fly flying into a beehive does not make that fly a bee. Let me ask you another question, though. Where do bees live? In hives, honeybees. In hives. They live together. Being in a flock of sheep does not make you a sheep, but sheep travel in flocks. So we can't use that to say, oh, I don't need church. It doesn't make me a Christian, therefore I don't need it. 
In fact, the Bible says the complete opposite in 1 John 2.10. It says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So, in fact, going to church and loving the bride of Christ and loving the body of Christ and loving being together is a sign that you are saved. If you have no desire to be together, no desire to hear God's word, you don't know why you're here right now, you don't know why you were here this morning, and does it mean anything to you, Another great theologian, Mabel Simmons, otherwise known as Medea, said, check your bulb. Better check your bulb to see if you're in the faith. The church is the bride of Christ. What do you think a man would say if you claimed to love him but neglected his bride? You hated his bride. I don't think your relationship with that husband would be very well, would it? That wouldn't end well. George Jones, another great theologian. We're just full of great theologians. George Jones sang a song, Me and Jesus, me and Jesus got our own thing going. Look at this point. Christ did not save you in a vacuum, but made you part of a family. Christ did not save you in a vacuum, but made you part of a family. You do have to make a personal profession of faith in Christ, a personal decision to follow him. But George Jones is incorrect. You and Jesus don't have your own thing going. In your little prayer closet, you might. But if it's devoid of the fellowship with God's people, it's empty. And you're missing a primary point of your Christian life. God is one. Christ is one. The Spirit is one. The mystery of the Trinity is three in one. The mystery of the body of Christ is that the many... Are one. Number three, let's go on tonight. Promise. Baptism is a promise to work together for the gospel. Baptism is a promise to work together for the gospel. If you look there in Ephesians chapter 4, where we were just reading, I won't return and read it again, but Paul puts this talk about the, the water baptism, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He puts his discussion about baptism in the context of a talk about unity. At the first part of Ephesians 4, he's talking about being loving one another, being humble with one another, being gentle with one another, being understanding and forgiving. And then he says, be unified because there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. He uses baptism as a sign of our unity with one another, our promise to the body of Christ. We are one in Christ. And we just talked about our pledge, our pledge to love each other, our pledge to fellowship with each other, other, and our pledge to meet together and to be faithful in our attendance. But we cannot skip this last part, being faithful in our promise to one another. Baptism signifies our promise. We are signing up for a mission together. We are signing up, we are enlisting in an army together. Look here, our gifts are different. Paul quickly goes into a, list of gifts he gave prophets he gave preachers he gave teachers he gave evangelists everyone has their own gift in the body of christ paul says though not everyone has the same gift first corinthians chapter 12 he makes that abundantly clear to these people who are clamoring over speaking in tongues and prophesying and healing and these sensational gifts paul says not everyone speaks in tongues not everyone prophesies Some have a gift or a measure of hospitality or love or faith. 
Not everyone has the same gift, but they all serve the same purpose. That's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 4. When Jesus ascended, he led a host of captives free and he gave gifts to men. And then he follows it up by talking about prophets and evangelists and preachers and teachers. How many of you have ever prayed for or know your spiritual gift? How many of you have ever prayed, God, what is my spiritual gift? What have you given me to serve you and to serve your church? Here's a key about spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gift is not a natural talent. Your spiritual gift is not a natural talent, but a supernatural anointing. It's not a natural talent, but a supernatural anointing. I hear people talk about spiritual gifts sometimes, and admittedly more from Baptist circles. And sometimes when they take spiritual gift tests in your Sunday school classes or whatever, you'll end up with things like administration or, you know, working with children or, or things like Those are not spiritual gifts. An unsaved person can be a good administrator. I play the piano. That's not my spiritual gift. My wife sings lovely. That's not her spiritual gift. It's not a natural talent that just anyone else could do, saved or not. Now, listen to me carefully, though. Even though playing the piano might not be someone's spiritual gift, leading people in the worship of God through playing the piano can be a spiritual gift. Leading other people into the presence of God through worship, through singing, can be a spiritual gift. Administrating in the church for the service of the gospel and the service of God's people with that purpose and that goal can serve as your spiritual gift. So what has God blessed you with? We don't all have the same gift, but we all have different gifts with the same purpose. Baptism is like going to the recruiting office, signing up, receiving your weaponry, and entering into the war. You receive your uniform, you receive your weapons, and you're enlisted, and you go to war. Not the same gifts, but the same war, the same purpose. Lastly, this kind of unity that comes to us in baptism is not unity for unity's sake. It's not unity just for the sake of holding hands and and singing kumbaya. (laughs) It's unity with a purpose. Unity with a purpose. When Jesus was baptized, he was illustrating his entrance into our story. He said, I will live the life you can't. I will die the death you should. And I will bring you salvation. When we are baptized into Christ, we are illustrating our entrance into his story. I receive the life you lived that I couldn't. I receive the death you died that I should have. And I receive from you salvation that I don't deserve. First and foremost, remember tonight that baptism is God's profession to you. If your faith is in Christ, you belong to him. 
It is your profession to him that you believe him and are committing yourself to him. And it is your profession profession to everyone watching and to the world that you belong to Jesus and he belongs to you. It is your pledge to the body of Christ that I will be here. I will not lay out for long periods of time for no reason. I commit myself to you, the body of Christ, because you are now my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then lastly, it's your promise. It's your promise to serve alongside one another. Now that we're committed to one another, it's our promise to serve, to use our gifts to further the gospel of Jesus Christ right here in our home of Avon Park and around the world. Many of you were probably baptized um, as a child. How, let me just ask you this. How many were baptized when you were under the age of 10? Not too many. Under the age of 15. How many were baptized 15 or older? You were 15 or older when you were baptized. 20 or older. 25 or older. Have two, three, 30 or older. Oh, Miss Nicole. 200 years ago, Southern Baptist numbers looked a little different. The average age of baptism 200 years ago was 18 to 25. The average age of baptism today in the SBC is six or seven. The average age. Do you realize what that means? That means there's a whole lot of baptisms occurring under the age of seven. And a lot more, maybe not as much, occurring over the age of seven. If seven is the average, that's the middle ground. Nothing wrong with being baptized as a child. But let me present you with this challenge. I was baptized when I was seven after making some kind of profession of faith when I was four. I didn't understand what either thing meant. I was simply doing it because it's what you did. If that's you tonight, if that was your baptism story, and you feel convicted about not knowing what was going on, you didn't understand the gospel, you didn't understand baptism, you just did it because it's what you did, I challenge you to receive baptism. Because you have not. I did not when I was seven. I was simply put in water. I was only baptized in 2009 after I realized I was really converted, understood the gospel, and was devoting myself to Jesus Christ. Can you really say in your baptism that you understood the faith? You were professing your faith in God, a profession that you knew you were making, a profession that you could have verbalized. Were you promising yourself to people? Were you pledging yourself to the cause of God? If not, I challenge you to be baptized. There's no shame in obedience. There's no shame in obedience. We will celebrate with you. I challenge you with that. Those that are baptized, those that have professed their faith in Christ and have received baptism after that volitional profession of faith, and you believe you know what happened, you understood it, I challenge you every time you see a baptism... Hear the water, see the water, understand the story that you entered into, and commit yourself anew, not only to God, but to everyone else around you. 
You were baptized by one spirit into one body. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this night, for giving us ordinances and material things with which we can touch and see and smell the gospel. We thank you for baptism, which verifies to us, confirms to us that we are saved by grace through faith, by calling upon Jesus, and that our sins are removed from us by the washing of regeneration through the word and by the blood of Jesus that is then signified in baptism. For those here tonight that are struggling with the question of baptism, whether they made a volitional profession of faith in that or whether they're just following through with the rite of passage, I ask that by your Holy Spirit you would give them not only conviction to follow through, but give them assurance and peace that what they're doing is from you and that they're obeying you and help us to commit ourselves not only to you, but to one another in the bond of love and in the power and the promise of the gospel. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. That's all for this edition of Living Faith. Stay connected to the teaching and preaching ministry of First Baptist Church by subscribing to this weekly podcast using your computer or mobile device. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet every Sunday for worship at 1045 a.m. and 6 o'clock p.m. We invite you to join us if you don't currently have a church home and are looking for a place where the Word of God is proclaimed with power and clarity. You can find access to all of this and much more by visiting our website at fbcap.net. We look forward to connecting with you. Until then, this is Living Faith.